All right, Micah is a lengthy book. Micah is not a book you can cover the book fairly in one Sunday school class. But that is what I'm going to do. And I'm warning you now, it's unfair. I'm skipping a whole bunch of stuff. And part of why I feel fine skipping a whole bunch of stuff in Micah, if we were bound by verse-by-verse explanation, like in a sermon series, or even if it was a Sunday school on the book of Micah, Sunday school class, we'd really go into detail on all of these themes. But this is a class on the Minor Prophets, and there's so much overlap of themes between the Minor Prophets that there's a lot of stuff I can skip and Micah because it's going to come up again in other prophets and I'll cover it in those books and some of it is stuff that we've already talked about in the books that we've covered. Um, So as we're considering the book of Micah this morning, I want to consider kind of Micah's most unique contributions to the canon. What are the things in the book of Micah that are less common or less frequent in in the canon that are more specific to Micah's word and prophecy? Um, Three specific areas jump out within the text of Micah, and that's what I'll try to cover this morning. The first is Micah's view of God. And this is a big one for me. This is the the love I have for the book of Micah, because I've shared with most of you before, when I am at my worst behaviorally, when I am um, not following Christ closely, I find myself being more and more selfish day after day, or when I am in, uh, not very common for me, but common in the Christian life, people that are wired differently, when you're in sort of those dark nights of the soul, those more, um, uh, how long, O oh Lord, times of the Christian life, my, uh, what, what gets me back on track, so to speak, is always the same thing, which is a study of the attributes of God. What I need, what's good for my soul, is to study who God is. And the more captivated I become with the beauty and glory of God, the less I look at myself and the more I look to him. And then that helps both in terms of comfort and assurance, but it also helps in terms of holiness and sort of renewed energy for sanctification. And Micah does that. Micah's view of God is one where he sees God's attributes not as some just idle academic traits that you capture in a book or encyclopedia and set aside for observation. He sees God's attributes as meaningful foundation for Micah's own comfort and assurance, which is a really important thing. Um, Second aspect of Micah that we'll cover, Micah provides a scathing, though honest, critique of what bad failed leadership looks like. Micah pulls no punches in his analysis of Israel's bad leadership and connecting the failure of the people to the poor leadership of their leaders. And then third, Micah, sort of uh, dovetailing from that, Micah gives us the image of what the perfect righteous leader would look like. In contrast to Israel's failed shepherds, Micah paints this picture of a shepherd who is to come, who is a good shepherd, who is the perfect ruler of God's people. So those are the three things that I'd like to talk about this morning from Micah. First, we'll start with Micah's view of God. And again, 
I have no idea what's on these slides, so it's fun for all of us, right? Uh, let's talk about, first, let's talk about God's sovereignty in judgment and in mercy. So chapter 1, 2, and 3. Hear you peoples, all of you pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and will tread upon the high places of the earth. And then go forward to chapter 4, 1 and 2. It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Uh, God is going to judge, and we've talked about this from all sorts of books that we've studied in here and in sermon series, God is going to judge Samaria and Judah because of their apostasy. That's verses 2 through 16 of chapter 1. Just a clear expression of God's judgment against Israel, north and south, for their apostasy. And specifically, look at chapter 1, 2 through 7. His really specific indictment against them is for what type of apostasy? It's false worship. Yeah, when you look at 2 through 7, he really hones in on false worship. There's a list of cities in the, the laments that is a series of puns on the name. Pun makes it sound like it's a joke, but sometimes it's, it's wordplay to, to highlight the point. So the city that's called House of Dust will roll in the dust. The city that is named Pleasant or Beautiful will be naked and in shame. Uh, the house of taking away, verse 11 at the end there, their protection will be taken away. And so God is just making it clear that uh, those names are prophetic. He will judge them. What will come to pass is given in even the names of those places. So this attribute that God is sovereign in his judgment uh, and in his mercy, because the judgment is just. It's the right thing to do. The people have rebelled against God. Their worship is false. They are idolaters. And so what you see in Micah, if you just read his voice, kind of his prophetic voice in chapter 1 is this uh, it's a good kind of tension he believes the judgment is just he is not preaching this against his will he believes that god is right and just to bring this judgment and look at how many phrases in chapter 1 where micah identifies with his people where the language is us we not just you Not just y'all are going to get what's coming to you, but he identifies with his people. That's a little foreshadowing of what makes a good leader or a good shepherd versus a bad shepherd. The bad shepherds, and we see this often in our interactions with the Pharisees. We talked about it over the last couple weeks. When something goes wrong, they blame the people. These people are the problem. These people are idiots is something the Pharisees say a lot the man born blind who's healed you were born in utter sin and you would teach us they don't care about the people they don't identify with the people that God gave them to lead Uh, but Micah does he identifies himself uh, 
with his people. And then attribute two here is God's self-consistency. Justin, would you go to seven and read 18, 18 through 20? Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain its anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So it's good as we have that, those verses are in our liturgy regularly in the confession of sin and in in our uh, assurance of pardon that we say together. And it's good to be reminded God's faithfulness, his grace toward his people is an expression of his self-consistency. He will do as he has promised. God will do what he says he will do. So though God's judgment will come against Israel, against the false prophets, against the corrupt priests. This whole book is about that. God's judgment is coming against the failed leadership and the people who followed them into idolatry. Yet, God will keep his promises to Abraham and Jacob. There will always be a remnant. He will maintain fidelity to his remnant and they will inherit the true promised land. Now, just as a little aside, It is instructive here for us thinking New Testament with New Testament goggles that when you read this promise that God makes, the faithfulness that he promises will come after the judgment, these blessings are primarily spiritual, aren't they? Tread our iniquities, cast out our sins. God's promises of what the Messiah would bring when you read the text carefully, become heavily skewed towards spiritual promises, not national political ones, which always were simply to point to the spiritual promises. So when the Jews receive Jesus and evaluate him, part of the reason we'll talk about today, Jesus doesn't use the word Messiah or Christ very much publicly. And that's why the Jews will say to him in John 10, Speak plainly to us. Tell us whether or not you're the Christ. And we all kind of roll our eyes like, you idiots, he's been saying this for 10 chapters. And that's true, but he also very purposely has not been publicly saying that he is the Messiah or that he is the Christ in those contexts because what they heard was political military Christ and Messiah. They sort of gloss over these spiritual promises and focus on material promises. And that's pretty easy to do, isn't it? I mean, even for us, is to treat God's promise of spiritual peace as if it's less valuable than the kind of day-to-day peace we would rather have and prefer. We all want circumstantial peace. That's nice to not have to be stressed or, or, uh, or sad or anything else. But it causes us to be a little bit dismissive of the reality of God's spiritual promises, that we have complete assurance, that we have absolute hope, that we have uh, a peace that will not be taken away from us, that we have access to the joy of our salvation. Yeah, but I want the joy of my stuff, or I want the peace of my circumstances. Or God doesn't promise any of that. But he makes these spiritual promises. He keeps these spiritual promises. And part of our job is to remember 
those are actually what's of greater value. Not that the other things are value less, but this is value, this is more value. Uh, God's promises of an exalted and blessed future are for the righteous in Christ. This is what Paul deals with with the Galatians. Somebody, if you would, turn to Galatians 3 for me. I think Jake looks like he's there. Will you read 5 through 9? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Who are the real sons of Abraham? To whom does God say he will keep his promises? Right? The, the ones who have faith. It's by faith that these things happen. So this is Micah's view of God. God's sovereignty in both judgment and mercy. And God's self-consistency. God will do what he says he will do. And especially over the last year, six months for me, that's been the phrase that I have to keep repeating to myself. That, that is what has sustained me, is this absolute confidence that God will do what he has said he will do. And I have to go back and remind myself, what did he say he would do and would not do? We had the elders prayer call on Friday, and I'll call out Stephen for a minute, because in his prayer, it really struck me that just the way he said it, He said, God did not promise us an easy life. He promised to break the hold of sin in our lives. I was like, man, I am so often guilty of looking for the thing he didn't promise and taking for granted or ignoring the the thing that he promised and fulfilled and is continuing to fulfill. This greater pursuit of holiness as more and more of the chains that have been broken from me actually fall off from me as I walk away from them. That's kind of my mental image of this, is that God broke all of the chains that bound me to the wall, and I have to walk in holiness and Christ-likeness so that those chains fall off and my heart is free and I follow the... right. And sometimes I choose to just leave some of those chains hanging on me and act like I'm still bound to them. And what I need to do is, is walk in confident expectation that the Lord has freed me from that. That's Micah's view of God. All right, let's talk about bad leadership. And it's back to this contrast I mentioned a moment ago, that in contrast to Micah, who identifies with his own people, even if he is less guilty than they, and I think that's an important thing to remember, is Micah doesn't identify with them because he is personally complicit in their idolatry and in their false worship. He identifies with them because they are his people. Period. That's enough. And it's corporate guilt that he shares with them. And corporate guilt used to really matter to God's people and used to really matter, especially to the leaders and the shepherds of God's people. And now you hear something like, that's between you and God. No, it's not. It's not. Shepherds can't just tell sheep, you're not my problem. Go do the best you can. 
that's not shepherding. That's abuse. That's what we heard in last week's passage, which is the reason why thieves and wolves have access to so many sheep in the church, is the shepherds are not even making the effort uh, to guard them. So the false prophets are not like Micah. They support and participate in and are complicit in the oppression of the people. And so this is Micah chapter 2. Look in chapter 2 at verse 2. Karen, would you read that? They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. The wicked leaders in the time of Ahaz are oppressing the lower classes of people. Remember, we just read about this in Amos as well that they were greedy, they practiced sexual immorality, they perverted justice, they oppress the people to get what they want out of life. And that's the contrast that God is making here between the people and their leaders. Then in verse, starting in verse 6, we find out that the prophets are involved in this endeavor as well. Stephen 6 through 11? Or actually, sorry, two, just read 2, 6, and 7. Do not preach thus... Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown in patience? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? They're saying that verse 3 is a lie. They're saying that God is not going to judge the people's wicked practices. They're telling the true prophet of God, you got to stop talking about sin and judgment. Ain't nobody need to hear that. That's what the prophets, the leaders of God's people are doing. Um, And then you see there in verse 11, they have a really faulty view of God. This is very similar to the Jews that Paul will address in Romans, that their faulty view of God allows them to say anything they want. Micah's understanding of the attributes of God is a foundation from which he speaks truth into the world. Their faulty understanding of God allows them to say anything they want, and that hasn't changed or gone away. People today who make up an idea of who God is from somewhere other than scripture can say anything they want and claim that it's in the name of God, and they often do. They tailor their message to what certain people want to hear. And when you start tailoring your message to people rather than God, you're going to prioritize certain types of people, aren't you? You're going to prioritize the people who can do something for you. The people who are powerful or who are rich or who are influential, you are not going to prioritize the orphan and the widow and the oppressed and all of the people that God prioritizes because they can't do anything for you. They utter wind and lies. It's that finger in the wind preaching, right? What will play well here? Which, Which way are the cultural winds blowing? What will satisfy the people? So then... Uh, who's got, Renee, can you read 6 through 10? What's the result of this kind of preaching? Chapter 2. Chapter 2, 6 through 10. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses 
from their young children, you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about in utter wind and lie, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. What's the result of this kind of preaching? This finger in the wind, tell the people what they want to hear. What's the result of that kind of preaching? Lawlessness. True social injustice and wickedness. People in this world today seem to think that regressive Christian, Judeo-Christian, puritanical values are the cause of the lack of justice in this world. It is just the opposite. It is the refusal of the leaders of God's people to speak and preach and teach the truth of what God says. That is why we are living in a moral hellhole. That's the truth. And so the answer is not to stick your finger in the wind and say, how do we reach people with what they want to hear? What is acceptable to a modern audience? The answer is to preach and teach the word of God. And to hold people in the church accountable for doing it. Go do this. Uh, Go practice justice. Uh, So that's chapter two. Chapter three shows how failed leaders bring the downfall of a nation. And it's the first four verses. Uh, Andrew, have you got one through four? And I said, "Here, here are you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. We should make that a scripture memory focus one quarter, shouldn't we? Um, That is supposed to be jarringly graphic. I mean, that is supposed to blow our minds and get our attention with uh, how intense that language is. Because failed leadership does not carry out the word of God. They have turned everything upside down. They hate good and they love evil. They eat their own. They they bring destruction to the very people that they are supposed to protect. Failed leadership does not carry out the word of God. And that is how graphic, how horrifying the result of that kind of leadership is. All right, let's keep, keep going. How about some good leadership? Our first example of good leadership is the prophet himself. Verse uh, Chapter 3, let's go to chapter 3, and look at verse 8. Justin, would you read that? But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Where does Micah get his power? The Spirit of the Lord. That's... That is essential to good leadership. Leadership that comes or that the leader believes is based on their own power is destructive. Leadership that begins in the power of the Lord 
uh, does transformative things. And that's what makes him not afraid to declare the judgment of God on the people. But it's also what makes him identify with his people in that judgment. And then he balances these messages of judgment with messages of hope. And that's what bears such very good fruit. That leadership of Micah bears very good fruit in the lives of God's people. Why? What happens on the basis of this prophet proclaiming his judge, his, uh, God's judgment? Hezekiah repents. Hezekiah's repentance is because of this message. This is how the Lord saves Jerusalem from that round of destruction. There would be more that would come as they would turn away. But the whole revival that happens in God's people in the time of Hezekiah is because this message was heard and was heeded. Jeremiah 26. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said, blah, blah, blah. Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster? Preaching in the Spirit of God to the hearers that are of one faithful person, who in God's providence happened to be the king. <laughs> and that brings national repentance and the aversion of disaster, at least temporarily. And so what that points to is always the leadership of God himself. Because our ultimate hope can never be in human leaders. We will have faithful human leaders along the way. We will praise God for them. We will pray that God will strengthen them by his spirit to lead us well. But we can never put our hope finally in human leaders. That is a recipe for disaster. But what God hints to in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, in chapter 4 and 5, as he gives this series of messages of hope... That there is a leader who will save the people, and it is the shepherd king. And what will the shepherd king do? He'll gather the remnant together, he will break the enemy's siege, and he will lead the people triumphantly. Y'all know anybody that might fit that description? Right? Uh, the shepherd king is the one who will fulfill these prophecies. The, the verse in uh, chapter 2, the Lord at their head, the shepherd king coming to the sheepfold, and pronouncing deliverance and leading the sheep out. That is the the image here. Chapters 4 and 5, you have this series of prophecies that are dominated by this message of hope. In contrast to the horrible injustice of the leaders in chapter 3, in chapter 4, somebody go there. Karen, you got 4, 3, and 4? He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What will, oh sorry, what will happen under the leadership of the shepherd king? Justice! So much justice that the weapons of war won't be needed. You won't have to fight militarily to maintain justice anymore. Because the shepherd king brings justice to his people. Uh, that's a contrast to what we saw from the prophets and the priests back in the earlier chapter. And if, when you go to chapter 5, uh, Pam, will you read 1 and 2? Now muster your troops, O daughters of troops. The siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, um, Ephrata. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So you all know the rest of that passage, Micah two through eight, or sorry, Micah five two through eight. Very famous prophecy about Jesus. We read it at Christmas. It's in our lessons and carol service. But the context of that passage is verse 1, which is there's a failure in leadership by Israel's earthly rulers. And that's why it is such a blessing that there is this promised shepherd king who will be entirely different from them. And then 2 through 8 describe Jesus's leadership. What life is like under the rule of the shepherd king. His greatness will be universal. He will bring peace. People will live securely. Under shepherds will be raised up who are faithful to the good shepherd. The result of his leadership is astounding when you contrast it to the position the people are in, which is the city is under siege because of the bad leadership that brought this about. And that is the glorious contrast of the book of Micah is that under bad leadership, people who do not give the people the true word of God, but people who tell them what they want to hear, the city is laid siege and eventually laid waste. But God in his faithfulness will always preserve a remnant and he will send a shepherd king to that remnant that will lead them in a way that leads to blessing and that will raise up under shepherds who will uh, help guide those sheep on his behalf. It is absolutely incredible incredible to see this contrast. All right. Can you find Christ in this book? <laughs> Did you read the book? <laughs> right. So in Matthew 2, 6, right? You of Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means the least among the rulers. It quotes it right here. For you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, what Pam just read. What about John 10? What we're going to read today, or what we read last week and today. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What about Ephesians two fourteen? He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the flesh and dividing wall of hostility. Or 1 Peter 5, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This language is all throughout the New Testament because so much of Micah, like all of the prophets, points to Christ. It's just a fantastic contrast of attributes, God's attributes for sinful fallen man's attributes, how those attributes are work out in leadership, and then the effect of that leadership on the people that they lead. And just the further down the line you get, the more massive those contrasts become. Until in the end, you're talking about the difference between God giving his people eternal and everlasting peace. And you're talking about the leaders in Micah's day chewing up their bones and spitting out the sinew. That is an absolutely incredible uh, contrast there.